Are you ready? Hey, you think you can tell us what to do? You think you can tell us what to wear? You think that you're better? Well, you better get ready. Bow to the masters. Break it down! Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. Uh, today we are heading into the ring and talking about professional wrestling. Introducing first, we have Matthew McConaughey's former campaign manager, the danger from Dagenham, all the way from JFK Jr.'s rally in Dallas, Texas, we have Toby Aloy. <laughs> How you doing, guys? <laughs> very, uh, very ominous music we have for you, Toby, with the Undertaker's music. Is this how you normally enter the sort of the, the podcasting world each time we step on? Sort of mentally, you're just getting into this. Actually, it's how I, I enter every room. I play that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, t- I tend to play that every time I, I, I enter a room. Um, so yeah, yeah, um, I'm very happy. Um, happy to be here. Calling on the mystical spirits of uh, of uh, of Richard Nixon. Okay, um, his opponent. Uh, the pride of Philadelphia, the darling of the Democratic Party, the queen of Christmas and getting drunk during podcast recordings, all the way from Mitt Romney's shower, we have Von Joy. <laughs> this is this is also how I enter everything. This is me getting into the zone to talk about Mitt Romney in the shower. Vaughn, thank you for joining us today in your sexy boy theme tune. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is a supreme pleasure, Simon. <laughs> so yes, um, we are doing wrestling, which is um, a slight departure from us in that we've never talked about wrestling before on the show, but it is um, still very much connected to uh, 20th century history and um, some forms of entertainment and of, of media that have, have evolved over time um, we're going to get kind of go through some of the history uh, both on the, the 19th and actually 20th century uh, and then moving on to 21st but before we we sort of dive in into this this world of american wrestling uh, can we just start by um talking about the term professional wrestling and one name in particular vince mcmahon um so what comes to mind when you hear the term uh, professional wrestling and Vince McMahon. Toby, do you want to go first? Uh, I think what comes to mind for me is that it's it's staged, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I would just go back to when I was a kid and I was like ten, and I thought that wrestling was was real. And uh, when I went to secondary school, I was talking to my friends, and and uh, a lot of people who disparaged the sport, you know, the sport. Um, <laughs> They said no, it wasn't. It wasn't real. It was fake. And and I was, I was really unsure about this. It was a little bit of an existential break for me. I wasn't. <laughs> but then, eventually, I I did find out that it that it that it was fake. And and I and I and I started talking about it like you know, uh, like I knew a little secret that no one else re- really knew. So yeah, I think when I think about professional wrestling, I think about sort of the staged drama a soap opera that um uh, mr mcmahon um created and and um uh and i also think of it as like a big event 
you know i i i don't know i think i'm a quite event orientated person i like like giant spectacles and things like that you know waiting for the, either the super bowl or the champions league final and i think that my first experience of these kinds of events was actually like wrestlemania Mm-hmm. um like cage matches like title matches all this stuff like you just get wound up onto like even before i i liked um football like i i, I really like wrestling and I, I like i really like the aspect of it you know like um following someone uh with with all of this story is intimate story and then trying having them you know gain this this sense of validation yeah it's, i that's what i i think of when i I really uh, think of professional wrestling. Unfortunately for me, actually, the wrestler I was I was most attached to back in the day was actually Chris Benoit, and oh, um, you know people know about uh, the tragedy that uh, surrounded him. And uh, for me, it was a little bit of a break, you know, like seeing, you know, what um, the excesses of that kind of culture um, can can rot rot on someone and their and their family as, as as well. So yeah, I think uh when I think of professional wrestling, I tend to think of the the fakeness of it, the the drama of it, but also like the spectacle. Like uh I think Vince McMahon produced spectacles that really made me really interested in 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 spectacle and high drama and things. And I, I don't necessarily think everybody feels the same way about things like that. Um and, and I think it's 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 a sort of a different way to see it, but I really think it is in many ways why so many people are are attracted to it uh, at at a young age. It it gives you that first sense of like dramatic spectacle. I think. Uh, Vaughn, your thoughts? No, no, I'd echo a lot of what Toby just said. It's definitely the first thing that comes to mind is like it's it's not real, like kind of like Santa Claus. <laughs> like I remember when I was a kid and being like wait wrestling's not real <laughs> like um so and the, the, yeah. the difference is just just to, just to because yeah. i am a little bit of a narcissist just just to uh jump in there <laughs> difference is that actually when i was a kid and i and i found out that the tooth fairy wasn't real and santa claus wasn't real i tried to tell my sister that this wasn't the truth like and i, I try to force it on her and break you know her her, her you know her romantic um you know sort of spirit yeah romantic spirit and all, all this but when people told me that wrestling was fake i was very defensive about, <laughs> about that and uh, yeah so it, it, it for me it was really like as you say Vaughn, like the santa claus and the, and the tooth fairy it was it was very sad yeah it's a it's a real kind of like eye-opener to reality I guess when you're a kid because there is so much spectacle and especially for our age group wrestling was geared towards us and it was it was a youth culture kind of thing predominantly so when you do realize like oh this isn't this isn't necessarily what I thought it was it just really shifts your perspective on a lot of things I think there could definitely be a cool cultural study done into children mm-hmm. who watched wrestling and their views on reality, but Absolutely. I, that's a different thing. But yeah, so I think of kind of um, like the mythic side of it almost. And the, as you said, like the soap opera elements, um, these grand kind of storylines that when you think about them for more than 30 seconds, you're like, 
This doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but they're entertaining. <laughs> it's a spectacle. And it's something that's just really cool and engrossing, especially as a child. Um, and I was saying earlier that doing this research, when I come across a name like Kurt Angle or something, mm -hmm. it unlocks this memory that I didn't remember I had. And I'm just yeah. like, oh my God, I remember everything about Kurt Angle. Where did that come from? Yeah, so yeah. It's mm -hmm. a, a very integral part of my childhood almost that I don't even recognize as being part of my childhood. It's really fascinating. Doing this research for this episode was was weirdly self-affirming in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I've like like yourself. Um, I'm a little bit older than both of you, and I I have my own distinct memories of of wrestling. For myself, I was into football at a very young age, and then some some friends, some older friends, who are a year or two older than me, were sort of in, started getting into wrestling and watching it on TV, and also like sort of play wrestling and sort of playgrounds and like trying to practice the moves nice. and all all that kind of thing. So you get into it that way and before long you sort of get involved in these you know ridiculous storylines and the spectacle of it so there's definitely an element of off as you guys have already said of, of spectacle of the size of it of these big shows they get put on these dramatic stories but i think also crucially for myself i got into wrestling just as the attitude era came along and there's a real sense of counterculture um with wrestling um at that point and it's kind of there was, there was a sexualization of, of some of it and there was a, a violence of some of it that was seen as kind of like a, a way to sort of rebel as a kid to be like um, moving away from sort of family entertainment TV and you're watching these grown men shouting each other to suck it while hitting each other with, you know, pieces of wood and then, you know, these beautiful women would come down in scantily clad outfits and there, there was an element of... of of the attitude era being just that of, of it being sort of counter towards the family entertainment, which it became later on. Um, I think, so for, for myself, it, it's a combination of combining the big spectacle with, with also being something that was much edgier and at least uh, from my viewpoint in the world at the time, being something that was much cooler than um, maybe other forms of entertainment. And I think, I think looking back on it now, there's an element of like when you're sort of 10, 11, 12 and you're sort of seeing these things, it's, you know, there's a, there's something different to watching kids TV compared to watching wrestling as it was then because of, of some of the extreme natures of it and a lot of that has now died away with it being more um, focused on safety of, of the performers and uh, sort of safety of the home viewers. I also think, um, I share a lot of the sort of the cognitive stuff that we've just talked about. I remember as a uh, as a teenager when I was at college, when uh, I remember getting a laptop, um, and I would have been like eighteen or nineteen, and I remember vividly like going on YouTube and watching old wrestling clips and just laughing hysterically. That I used to like, it was sort of both a laughing at it and a laughing with it. And like, God, I used to invest so much like time and energy into like whether or not the cane whether or not cane was gonna you know tombstone the undertaker or whatever it was mm -hmm. and just watching it back and watching those old grainy clips on youtube it was so funny to think just a few years previous to this when i was uh, 10 11 12 you know that stuff really meant a lot to me and you know you can kind of see it a bit more 
now you know the sort of fakeness of it and the staged nature of it but at the same time i can still totally see why i was so engaged and why i did think that you know someone doing a harakarana was the most important thing someone could do in the world um so yeah i i absolutely share share your thoughts on on wrestling in general and then i suppose more specifically on vince mcmahon he was such a cartoon villain for most yeah. of the, his run um in the wwf and he you know he was he created a fictional version of himself who was who was most of the time the bad guy to someone like stone cold steve austin and um i, I guess as you get older you you understand that there's a real Vince McMahon and then there's the, the fictional one, which is in the WWE um, sort of TV broadcasts. And then as you get a little bit older than that, you realize I'm actually maybe they're closer to being the same person. Yeah. Um, so that, that's quite fascinating. Okay. Um, shall we move on to um, some, some of the history of it? So Vaughn, you're going to tell us a little bit about professional wrestling in America in, I believe the late 19th century and earliest 20th century, sort of up to about 1950. Is that correct? Yes, I am going to do that. Um, right. So as you were just talking, I very quickly. Is, is the WWE like a children's cult? <laughs> like how we all have these memories with it, but we don't like re- like like it was an intense time, right? It was when we yeah. were kids and it was like you had to watch Raw on Monday night and like you have to watch Smackdown and if you don't watch WrestleMania, like, who are you, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was such an integral part, but I forget all of it. And then it's just unlocked with these, like, just mentioning, like, Shawn Michaels. I'm like, oh, my God, of course, Shawn Michaels, you know? Mm-hmm. It feels like a cult. It does. It does feel like, or some sort of shared hallucinative dream that, we, yeah. that we're all kind of just now recollecting. It's just such a fascinating kind of cultural thing. Speaking of cultural things my segue um so professional wrestling in the u.s started in the post-civil war period um in the late 1860s and early uh, 1870s and it was like primarily um for spectacle it's always been about spectacle but in various kinds of ways so in the the late 1900s no 19th century it was part of the um kind of circus culture of like traveling shows and there were these wrestling exhibitions at the the carnivals and the circuses in colorful costumes and like the the wrestlers had these absurd kind of biographies that you knew were obviously fictional um and the wrestlers were entertainers primarily but there was a lot of emphasis on the actual physicality of it and the athleticism um, of the wrestlers. It was more competitive. Um, it was more kind of strong men throwing each other around and closer to the actual like athletic sport of wrestling, of like Greek wrestling that you would think of with like the old Olympics and everything. Um, There were legitimate contests and competitions in the early years, and it was it was seen as a a legitimate sport. Um, It gradually started becoming more popular as it traveled around the country and um, more shows started popping up 
more frequently and this kind of gradual progression towards the main evolution that we're going to talk about. So originally there was this carnival nature. It was just a show and there was a bit of competition. And because of that, there was betting. So it became a gambling sport. And people in the audience would place bets. And eventually the wrestlers realized that they could make money off of this by setting challenges to the audience and seeing if someone could beat the wrestler. So getting the audience that's betting into the mix. Multiple things kind of develop simultaneously here. So first, there are the impresarios, who are the managers of wrestlers, and they acted as kind of like their promoters. Um, they do all the marketing and make a name for the wrestler. And the bigger the name and the grander the spectacle, the more money you could charge for an event. So second, there were carnies, who were the wrestlers. Um, they traveled around with the carnivals and circuses and started using tricks in their acts uh, to make it look even more impressive with kind of obscure new moves that either were or looked dangerous. And it improved the spectacle and therefore the profits. And third, there were people called barnstormers who were almost like plants in the audience. So barnstormers would show up to the events where the carny or the wrestler um, would challenge the audience and they'd take the challenge frequently having arranged ahead of time with the wrestler or the impresario um, how this kind of match would go. So again, the grander the spectacle and the more dramatic the challenge, the more profits were made. And the barnstormers would also place bets uh, either for or against themselves and agree with the wrestler ahead of time who's going to win the show and how so you could place bets on which moves are going to be made and everything too and then they'd they'd either throw the matches or win and rake in profits from the bets and split them with the wrestler or impresario um the wrestling industry made up a word so audiences wouldn't know what what they were talking about which was kfab meaning they were faking matches and making seemingly like incredibly dangerous or injury inflicting moves um, that were mostly safe. So they could openly talk about these things and audiences wouldn't know what was going on essentially. So in uh, 1887, Chicago had the first championship match called the American Catch As Catch Can Championship. Not a very catchy name. Um, and this soon developed across the country where every wrestling promotion company had their own kind of championship title. And the goal was to like acquire other companies' titles, which like launched wrestlers to greater national renown. So the the kind of traveling nature started to become to become more local, regional, um, and a bit more stationary. You weren't necessarily traveling around the country anymore, but you were challenging other regions for their titles. And that's how it became a national spectacle with nationally renowned names for wrestlers. So like with this as the, the pre-20th century development of wrestling, we can see kind of like where the WWE has, has roots um, in such like a longstanding tradition of like 
almost immediately after wrestling started, it turned into placing bets and creating a spectacle and making mad profits off of fooling audiences. Um, so most of the wrestling moves and popularity came from immigrant communities in the Midwest, from ethnic European communities bringing traditional athletics from their cultures to the U.S., and then the U.S. doing what it always does and finding a way to exploit those cultural, tra cultural traditions for profit. Uh, and they did it extremely well. That's where a lot of the roots of um, like wrestlers from immigrant communities or ethnic backgrounds, how they really play that up as part of their character. That's still something in, in wrestling today that we would recognize. So throughout the early 1900s, there were famous superstars like Martin Farmer Burns and Frank Gotch, uh, Ed Lewis and Toots Mond. There, there was a famous group called the Gold Dust Trio who used these like absurdly athletic and showy kind of KFAB maneuvers um, to create the spectacle. And this trio in the 1920s developed the, the stationary wrestling performance, um, really grounded into one area in, in the U.S. and inspired that in other places. They, they really developed professional wrestling into what we see it as now. So whereas before wrestlers were like traveling around the country um, and became well known for their strength and tricks and like fighting prowess, the Gold Dust Trio stayed together for years and brought more wrestling wrestlers into their group to develop plot lines around their characters, much more akin to how we think of it now. Um, this was kind of tradition through the 20s and 30s, and it was pretty plateaued with the popularity of it. People enjoyed it, but we were also going through the Depression and um, early 40s. We had World War II, so it wasn't it wasn't that much of a focus throughout these years, but there were still these like small pockets of federations and um, there were still nationally recognized names. So by 1948, um, there's a loose union that's formed between independent wrestling promotions known as the National Wrestling Alliance or NWA, which is going to be much more important in a moment as we get into further history. But the NWA unified further in the 1950s under the first World Heavyweight Championship title in which some promoters would have their wrestlers shoot a match, meaning they'd perform unscripted moves that were often more dangerous than agreed upon beforehand so as not to lose their own titles and fame. So through this whole kind of progression from the 1860s through like the late 1940s. Um, there's this tradition of spectacle, there's a tradition of entertainment, and there's a tradition of profits. And like back house deals and behind the scenes, let's trick the audience and all of, all of that kind of um, building of the spectacle, let's say. And by the 1950s, we have wrestlers who are starting to want more than just kind of being part of the wrestling spectacle and having individual profits. 
Um, and that takes a turn later in the century as well. But that's that about gets us up to date from early origins through the 1940s, early 50s. Well, thank you for that. That was extremely uh, detailed over a number of years. Um, just before we dive into uh, the 50s and 60s, um, just was it enjoyable kind of diving into that, that part of American history that you hadn't, I'm assuming you haven't read on before? Hmm. Yeah, I actually... Um... When I was when I was applying for my PhD, I was really torn between doing post-war and turn mm-hmm. of the century because I'm absolutely fascinated by the carnival and entertainment aspects, like the world's fairs mm-hmm. and the the um, amusement parks, especially around the 1880s through like 1910. Mm-hmm. I really, really love entertainment in that time period. So this was this was really fun. And like going back to something that I used to study in undergrad. And it was yeah i enjoyed that a lot actually fascinating okay um do you want to um introduce us a little bit more to the the, the rise in popularity of wrestling in the 50s and 60s and um how um how, how things sort of evolved um around that time yeah so post-war this is my shit <laughs> um <laughs> so um television wasn't necessarily super popular in the early 40s because people couldn't afford them. It's just a fact. But the first televised wrestling show um, was filmed on December 18th, 1942 in Schenectady, New York. Um, Nobody had TVs, so it didn't really take off. And that was seen within the industry as kind of a bad sign. Like maybe we shouldn't move professional wrestling onto television because nobody wants to watch it. But they tried again in 1947 with a show called Hollywood Wrestling that came out of Los Angeles. And it was a massive success. Um, And Hollywood Wrestling ran from 1947 to 1952. So this was kind of a a resurgence for wrestling that it was kind of plateaued through the 30s and the early 40s. And people were like, oh, I don't know if we should really continue with this industry. And then Hollywood wrestling just like kind of catapulted it. And they were like, "Okay, television is where we go with wrestling. So this is where things really start to develop um, into what we recognize now as professional wrestling. So there was one wrestler called gorgeous George who like he was like a six like if we're being honest he wasn't that gorgeous but um, But he was rich though he was rich he was wicked rich and he was wicked charismatic so his character is described as this like flamboyant handsome charismatic guy who people really started kind of falling in love with and um national media picked this up and they were like who is this superstar so his his character is really what garnered him so much fame not really anything to do with his moves or his strength or or anything athletic like that um additionally bob hope the comedian he saw one of his matches just happened upon it in new york and 
started using Gorgeous George as a cultural touchstone in his comedy that really helped his career along even more because Bob Hope was a massive star in the 1950s. So this like rapid fame for Gorgeous George um, and relative notability of some of the other wrestlers kind of catapulted wrestling almost entirely away from any athletic roots and towards the, the more kind of sole purpose of performance and spectacle. Um, he was the first to be an entire narcissist. Like that was his whole character, kind of <laughs> like Ric Flair, um, if you're familiar with Ric Flair. Um, and he was the first to have his own entrance music. One thing about Gorgeous George as well is that um, when Gorgeous George would enter the ring, he'd have a butler escort him and yes. his butler would spray something into the ring. And it was called Oh de George. It was this. Uh, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it was really was a narcissist. Yeah, really all about himself. This this guy. Uh, I mean, he called himself Gorgeous George and he was not so like. But anyway, so wrestlers started joining the the NWA, the, the Federation in droves, um, not really with any real athletic desires or skills, but to become television superstars. One, one super interesting thing about this change is that it shifted the focus from strength-based athleticism with like hard punches and power moves and throwing each other around towards acrobatics specifically. And like these burly, manly, uber masculine men were no longer that way just because of their muscles, but more because of like the gymnastics they could perform. And I just, I think like wrestling is a fascinating study in gender, really. Um, but that's kind of a different conversation, but fascinating nonetheless. So, anyway. So through the late 1950s and 1960s, professional wrestling was starting to kind of lose favor on a national scale. It was oversaturated and overexposed because of this like sudden resurgence in, in the early 50s. So pro wrestling was shown on like local syndicated networks more frequently as national channels dropped them for low ratings. But the behind the scenes competitiveness and like fixing of the matches and, and wrestling and everything um, that was still a feature because local companies, the, the local wrestling federations would purchase airtime on their rivals, local channels and kind of like encourage turf wars on syndicated television, uh, which is just like a fascinating cultural moment to think about. Right. Like I've, I think that's really interesting to have these like, little television rivalries yeah absolutely right yeah it's, it's um, a fascinating thing from, even... a, from a media point of view about me the, the media still being so this medium still being so new and us having to sort yeah. of carve things out on a, a regional basis yeah sorry on you go one no yeah i just i find it really fascinating like this there's a turf war over local syndicated television anyway so in the 1960s um a rival federation was developed. This one was called the American Wrestling Association, which is the AWA, and it challenged the NWA because Vern Gagne, who was a main player for the NWA, 
he was denied the NWA champion title and he threw a hissy fit and started his own American Wrestling Association like Henry VIII and the Church of England. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly the same thing. Um, At the same time around then, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation or the WWWF which would later become the WWF and then even later than that, the WWE um, also rose up out of New York in the 1960s. So the WWF's primary arena throughout the sixties and seventies was Madison square garden. So like, you know, that that's the Federation that made it big and lasted the longest. Um, But the AWA was not far behind and gained a resurgence when Hulk Hogan was the powerhouse and star of AWA also starred in Rocky III in 1979. So for a few years, um, AWA was still kind of in the ring, but their petty leader and founder of the AWA, um, Vern Gagne, he refused to allow Hulk Hogan to be the champion. So he ultimately left in 1983, which absolutely destroyed the AWA, but I'm getting ahead of myself because we have other things to cover before that. We do. Um, we're going to touch a little bit more on uh, the McMahons and um, their kind of history uh, as well, and just briefly touched upon there in, in the 1950s and 60s and, and 70s, leading, leading up to uh, Vince McMahon Jr. in the 1980s. Um, Toby, can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, I believe it was Jess McMahon was the grandfather, and then Vincent J. McMahon was the father, and then leading up to um, Vince McMahon uh, junior as we we know and love him today can you tell us a little bit about their involvement in 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 sort of the wrestling world in this time yeah so uh, jess mcmahon was the first um mcmahon to be involved as a promoter uh in the wrestling world um he started in it uh after 1915 uh at the freeport uh municipal uh, stadium uh, he worked uh, to book sort of um, wrestlers in, in Coney Island. Um, it was part of the formation of the trust uh, that claimed uh, New York as their territory. Uh, as uh, Vaughan has said, you know, um, in this period, the bookings and uh, wrestling matches were, were, were done regionally. And there was a lot of uh, regional collaboration, actually, um, even to the time of Gorgeous George, if Gorgeous George was doing well in uh, New York or, or, or Connecticut, Coney Island, um, so rival groups uh, in the rest of the country could have Gorgeous George come to them as well. So there was this, there. So Jess really was the first McMahon at, to really be a promoter um, in sort of n- the New York and uh, northeastern uh, area. His son uh, Vincent really took over. Uh, he saw a tremendous uh, potential growth for the uh, wrestling industry. Uh, after the war, um, Vincent actually uh, helped introduce the New York uh, sort of more television involvement um, in wrestling. He, he obviously set up the Capital Wrestling uh, Corporation, uh, which was eventually um, renamed a Worldwide Wrestling Federation and uh, which which uh, obviously came to to dominate wrestling, especially in the Northeast in the in the nineteen fifties uh, and and sixties. But 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 
Vincent was very much of the old guard. Uh, he respected the alliances and uh, collaboration across regions. Um, it, it's it's something that his son um, Vincent Jr. would see as really holding back the potential uh, revenue of uh, wrestling. But this is something that that Vincent Senior uh, kept um, uh, during uh, his time. Um, Vincent uh, b- began airing his matches on television uh, on, on Wednesday nights. Um, and, uh, but then, and he does, uh, like his father, he has, he has sons, but there is a strangeness of um, Vincent Jr. McMahon, the, the, the Vincent McMahon that we, we've come to know is that uh, he, he was born in North Carolina, um, which was different from his fa- father and his grandfather. His bid, they were very much Northeasterns. They came from the Northeastern region of the, of the, the country. And, um, and Vincent McMahon actually lived in a trailer park with his brother and his mother um, when he was born. And uh, he's talked about his because uh, his his mother and his father split up but they divorced and his father was actually living a quite a well-off life as a wrestling uh, promoter sort of glamorous life um but vincent jr was living in a in a trailer park in in north carolina his mother um ma- married various men and um mcmahon has talked about the abuse that he received um, from those men, physical abuse and the physical abuse that his uh, mother also received uh, as well. And, you know, he, he, he developed this idea that, you know, if he, if he got through the beatings that meant that uh, he won. So, so he developed that, um, that feeling from a, from a formative, uh, from his formative experience. And then it's, it's only actually at 12, that he meets his father. His father really wasn't interested in children. Um, it was his father's new wife um, because they couldn't have children that uh, persuaded him to go and uh, meet his children and to, to reconcile with, with them. And so at 12, he, he reconciled with his father. He found out that his father was involved in, in wrestling. And actually, um, Vincent McMahon really was interested in this world. He was um, completely taken by it. He wanted to be a wrestler. His father would, you know, his father wasn't interested in him being a wrestler. He wanted him to be an accountant or a doctor or something like that. But he was um, really in love with wrestling, the love with the world of the father that he had just met and uh, just developed uh, a, a relationship uh, with. And um, Vincent does eventually go to college. Um, after he goes to college, he, he does a number of part-time jobs. He, he obviously meets uh, Linda McMahon, who became his wife. Uh, they actually met when uh, she was 13 and he was 15. So they had a, a romance that, that, that really came out of their, their youth. And they, they were together for, for a really, really uh, long time. And, um, and so Vincent comes out of this quite odd experience given that his father and his grandfather were actually quite wealthy men his, his actually grandfather came from a 
a banker family to living in North Carolina, trailer park, then reconciling with his father, then going to, to college, working some part-time jobs, and then trying to convince his father that he could be a promoter. And so in, in eventually in 1972, his father says, okay, I'm going to give you a chance. There's a promoter in Bangor, uh, Maine, who's uh, not turning up, he's not doing well. And we're going to see what you can do uh, in that um, particular part of, you know, my Northeastern wrestling uh, empire. And um, Vincent goes there and he gets on like a house on fire. Um, he helps introduce uh, television in Bangor. And uh, he's, he's really, really successful there. And, um, and this was the one chance that his father gave him, but because he's so successful, then he gets to be a promoter uh, of wrestling um, in that uh, period. And that's, that's really how um, Vince McMahon became a major uh, promoter of uh, wrestling in this uh, period. But um, I think one of the, the, the problems between him and his father at, at this period, especially at the beginning of the 1980s, was this thing about the uh, consolidation of wrestling all over the, the country. Um, mm-hmm. Vince Jr. had this view that, that um, the regional aspects of wrestling, that, uh, you know, and it, and it was in many ways a, a gentlemanly agreement, a gentleman's agreement. Um, he felt that that really restricted uh, wrestling and restricted the potential revenue, but also the potential scale of the events that were, were possible uh, within wrestling. Vincent, obviously, uh, he was becoming famous for the amount of uh, television that he was using. Um, the, the WWF is rapidly becoming um highly successful because it's combining a lot of it's doing a lot of like partnerships and cross-pollination i think it's really interesting thing with uh wrestling as vaughn has really talked about is that there's this this there's this explicit business aspect of it you know when you're talking about any other sport you're not really talking about the business so much but this is really explicit business aspect um vince mcmahon is he he's responding to the birth of, of, of MTV by do help getting like very successful uh, musicians to come to the WWF and to sing in openings. Um, he's 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 doing a lot of really interesting things with uh, television, um, he, and then he's he's thinking about an idea of creating a Super Bowl for wrestling, which which eventually became. Uh, WrestleMania. He, you know, he has this. They brainstorm a number of different names for this thing, and they eventually come up with the idea of having it at Madison Square Garden. And the, the, the event draws one million viewers, and really kicks off, you know, this this cultural phenomenon that's going to, you know, become so intrinsic to to the nineteen nineteen nineties. And but um, by WrestleMania three, which is ha- held in Detroit. You know, the WrestleMania three is actually the most watched indoor event in the history of Detroit. So, again, you could see that there's this this coming of this huge 
cultural uh, phenomenon. And, and because of this, Vince McMahon is becoming more and more intent on sort of breaking this, this regional divide. And, uh, but while his father is, uh, is alive, his father is not particularly interested in this idea. Um, what Vincent does kind of secretly a little bit is he goes to different states and he has his uh, and he promotes his wrestlers there and he promotes his wrestlers at local um, stadiums and community centers uh, uh, and, and many, actually many of the most popular of his wrestlers in the, in those communities. And if people are calling up his father, you know, like old heads are calling up his father saying, wait, um, what's happening with your son? Your son's, you know, he's, he's violating our, you know, sort of old stated laws. Um, do we need to send someone over there to, to, to sort him out? And, and that is creating a rift between Vincent and his father. Actually, in the same period, his father wants to sell his stake in, in capital wrestling, which Vincent um, averts by creating a, a business deal that will allow Vincent Jr. to take over. Um, but And then, you know, towards the, the sort of end of the 80s, his father dies, and then Vincent Jr. sees the real potential of taking over wrestling in the whole of the country. And he does this, as uh, I had spoken before, by going to um, different local markets, pushing the strongest wrestlers there, doing a lot of advertising, and slowly but surely, you know, crippling a lot of this regional um, structure of wrestling at the time. Um, uh, but there is, at the same time, there is a, a rival group because some of the regional um, groups that don't sell out to, to the WWF, they go to Ted Turner, who was a businessman, and, and um, Ted Turner decides that he sees a lot of money and potential in um, wrestling and the, and the WWF. F and what the, what they're doing. It's um, there's a lot of potential being seen by USA Today and NBC and MTV in this thing, and so he creates the WCW, which becomes a, a rival to uh, the WWF at this time. Perfect. Thanks, for that Toby. Um, Vaughn, do you have anything else to touch upon as far as um, around the eighties? And obviously, we, we were just mentioning um, the, the influence of Hulk Hogan and his importance of increasing popularity of, of wrestling at that time. Um, yeah, I mean, everything Toby said was spot on, um, obviously. And yeah, the only things that I would really add are um, that the, the rock and wrestling era of like bringing musicians and like music legends into mm -hmm. the ring and, and this cross promotion was like a wild time and I want to spend spend a, like a little bit longer on that because <laughs> one of the biggest names in the WWF in the 1980s was Cindy Lauper and I think that needs more attention. <laughs> like that's wild, right? It really is. And then in 1985, Hulk Hogan because he was such a such a star like the all-American Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania 
um, so iconic in the 80s, especially because of him being in Rocky Three in 1979. Um, he had this, this idea that he's going to gear himself towards the youth because youth responded so well to Rocky. And Hulk Hogan made a series of moves in the 80s to bring children into wrestling and make really kind of make wrestling part of youth culture, which is grounded even more in the 90s and early 2000s, as we said up top. But to do this, Hulk Hogan in 1985 created an animated kids show called Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling, where he brought these these music stars into this animated kids show of him wrestling and i find that fucking fascinating (laughs) yeah it really is uh hulk hogan Hogan just is like a timepiece of of america especially if it is a fascinating character and in fact they're they're actually going to be making a film with chris hemsworth as hulk hogan in the near future so i hadn't um, heard that yeah, apparently he's been cast to play him. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what parts of the story they actually tell with that. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, yeah, the the rock and wrestling is just a fascinating little part. You can do anything in the 80s. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, as Toby said, WrestleMania was at Madison Square Garden, the first one in March 1985. Um, and there were like two events... Um, around WrestleMania three, which was in 87. And then the following year, there was one called the main event one. And at both of those, um, Hulk Hogan battled Andre the Giant. And the the second match um, in 1988 had 33 million viewers. And I believe it is the most viewers for any wrestling event to date. So this is when it really, really peaks um, in the late 80s and wrestling becomes like a permanent fixture of like, well, I mean, a relatively permanent, that's not a phrase, that's an oxymoron, (laughs) but it becomes very, very important to American culture in the late 80s and early 90s into the early 2000s because of all of this. Um, And yeah, Ted Turner, founder of CNN, in 88 establishes the or uh purchases the the cwa and other federations around that were failing and renames it the world championship wrestling and their headliner is rick flair um who i mentioned earlier with with gorgeous george and like the the supreme narcissist kind of (laughs) character um to combat kind of vince mcmahon's like stranglehold on professional wrestling but yeah, everything everything Toby said was spot on, as so. as, as one would expect. Um, so that yeah. that kind of sets us up nicely, as both Vaughn and Toby have mentioned, around this now setup of Vince McMahon and the WWF, and then you have Ted Turner and WCW. Um, around this time, um, the what would later become the Monday Night Wars. Um, I think from ninety five to about two thousand and one. Um, was the kind of the, the, sort of the crescendo of 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 the battle between those two? But I don't know which one of you wants to just talk maybe a little bit more about wrestling in the nineties and how um, those two sort of 
went head to head against each other and how things evolved and then how we eventually got the, the attitude here in the WWF. I think that um, in this, this period, I think one of the great difficulties uh, now for Mr. McMahon became a series of scandals. So uh, why the WWF became particularly vulnerable to uh, competition from uh, WCW was because the the grip on um, on the news media was 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 really difficult for for Mr. McMahon in this period. Obviously, um, WrestleMania became this phenomenon. Uh, Hulk, Hulk Hogan and, and Hulkamaniacs had uh, become a phenomenon. But then you have the the steroid allegations that. Um, the WWF um, has to deal with. Uh, you have uh, a number of uh, rape allegations, uh, one to do with um, a particular announcer and uh, sort of a, a younger male, and then another to do with um, Mr. McMahon uh, himself. Um, and in this period, it's 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 really only until Mr. McMahon kind of embraces some of this darkness and embraces this, that, um, that you have the attitude error and then you have Ted Turner really seeing in the numbers and the, and the target audience numbers that he can't really compete with the WWF uh, anymore. So yeah, so it, beca- it be- really be- big, big, begins in the with the steroid uh, allegations uh, consuming the WWF in the summer of, of 1991. And at this time, this time, this was a, a ratings drop for the, for the WWF. Uh, and it, it's, it's something that um, Mr. McMahon hadn't really experienced. Um, you know, his, his career up to that point had been, you know, sort of just going up and up and up and up um, into the 1980s, the Iron Sheik, the, you know, the, the success of the Iron Sheik, the success of Hulk Hogan. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the ratings declined by 16% at, at this, this time. Um, and this was a, a perfect time for Turner's, um, obviously, uh, investments in WCW. Um, and then... At the, at the same time, uh, the attorneys uh, in New York, uh, attorneys like Sean O'Shea, uh, the, the head of business and securities frauds um, uh, for the U.S. Uh, attorneys in Brooklyn, believed um, Mr. McMahon was, was uh, guilty of fraud and also guilty of um, steroids uh, abuse. Um, there was this idea at the time uh, that uh, Mr. McMahon was the main steroids distributor in um, the WWF. You know, a lot of guys would come in, and you know, they would they had, you know, views that they weren't big enough, and um, the, the the saying at the time that Mr. McMahon was just going in and saying, well, you know, just give them give them steroids. At the same time. There was the uh, sex a- allegations and, and uh, sex sex scandals, um, uh, but Mr. McMahon was was doing a lot of work to try to to suggest that the 
the WFF were drug free. He was protesting um, against O'Shea. Um, but uh, O'Shea actually had a particular hatred for Mr. McMahon. He, he you know, he saw him as a, a little bit of, of, a, of a liar, uh, a deviant of sorts. And, and, and I think the, the same thing was kind of coming out of the, the New York Post at, the, at that same time. There was a, there was a journalist at the, at the New York Post um, who, who was describing Mr. McMahon in, in the same way. Uh, it, it was at the same time that Mr. McMahon went out of his way um, to, to start to tell people, actually, um, which is quite different from Ted Turner, that uh, wrestling was entertainment. Uh, he said explicitly that wrestling was entertainment um, for that purpose. And at the New York Post, the, the journalist said, well, we think he only did this to avoid the steroid uh, commission and regulation in, in wrestling. Um, Mr. McMahon himself has um, raised concern with that because he believes that uh, regulation is important in, say, boxing and other sports, but um, regulation was not needed. And in fact, he believed drug control wasn't necessarily needed in in um, professional WWF wrestling because it was entertainment. And um, and it was uh, that was a particularly interesting time as well. I think uh, Ted Turner, when when Ted Turner actually called Mr. McMahon to say that he had started the WC. Uh, w, he Ted Turner said, you know, I've I've joined the the wrestling business, and Mr. McMahon said, well, you know, I mean, uh, it's good that you've joined the wrestling business, but I'm in the entertainment business, and so you could see that Mr. McMahon was really trying quite desperately at this time to define himself against the WCW, define himself really against the the old older idea of professional wrestling. Um, really to dodge the the sex allegations that were, were made against uh, announcers at the WWF uh, and the steroid allegations that were, were, were made at this time as well. And, and interestingly enough, I think that the, the way he managed to ride a lot of this criticism was not to try to ape the family-friendly WCW image or to try to go back it was really to go forward in and focus much more on um, on subjects that wrestling had kind of stayed out of obviously you know you had had gorgeous George who was a character and Hulk Hogan again Iron Sheik people like that who were characters created characters dramatic characters but Wrestling actually started to move into a new era, which focused on theme on different kinds of themes around, um, say, homosexuality and um, and and fighting and alcoholism and drugs, and and this is really where people like uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin come into. Uh, wrestling and start to have a a, a real impact on on, on the culture uh, in a way that uh, was was really different um, from from the 1980s creation of the of the real success of the WWF 
um, in order to fight the success of, of Ted Turner and and a lot of these allegations that were coming up against the Mr. McMahon at the time, uh, he took the the WWF in a, in a completely uh, different direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, worth noting, as you said, Toby, that um, the the wars of, of the 90s, um, I just add, add, add a little bit. Um, so you had the WCW in the, the early 90s. Um, you had Eric Bischoff, who was the executive director, um, or sorry, executive vice president of WCW. And a lot of his tactics were based around taking talent away from the WWF and introducing them into WCW. And um, in uh, in turn, um, WWF was starting to, to fade and the Monday Night Wars, as they were, began when uh, WCW created uh, Monday Nitro to actually go up against Monday Night Raw. And uh, for a while, WCW was the, the, the ratings winner. They had the New World Order, who were this... Um, heel stable that were seen as the kind of the, the most established most powerful uh, wrestling group at the time uh, and um wwf was was kind of struggling a bit um part of wwf's ability to turn that around was the, the attitude era vince mcmahon being able to um create this mr mcmahon character um and uh, have him as kind of part of the center of the story so um, a lot of the time, Mr. McMahon would be the kind of establishment going up against someone like Stone Cold Steve Austin, who would be able to use his um, sort of swearing and sort of um, more, more vulgar approaches and beer drinking to kind of stand up to this stuffy corporate Mr. McMahon character. Um, at sort of roughly the same time, you had um, The Rock coming along and he was able to sort of transform his character from being sort of this young naive um rocky maivia character to being a bit more of a badass and eventually the rock that kind of became known and you also had a variety of other different um stars within wwf so you had toby's favorite you had the undertaker and some of his extreme matches and his uh, sort of established character of the 80s kind of evolved a bit and we saw some extreme matches with people like Shawn michaels and uh, mick foley mick foley himself was um, known for, for the, the extreme natures of his, his matches and um, he would end up um, doing all sorts of um, physical um, extreme matches you know he would be involved in uh, barbed wire matches and things like that with, with Triple H and leading on to that you've got the Generation X which were kind of f- famous for their adult themes and um, they're kind of uh, established establishing stars such as, uh, as Triple H and X-Pac and um, it was a, a very fertile time for for wrestling, uh, especially in the WWF, as as the nineties kind of drew to a close. And then by the the early two thousands, we're, we're moving towards um, kind of, if not domination, at least um, sort of victory um, by Vince McMahon and the WWF. Um, Vaughn, I don't know if you've got anything else to add on. on, on uh, but the... just just oh, just, sorry, just uh, and and uh, yeah, as as. Um... As Simon says, yeah, this is uh, this is really the way that uh, Vince McMahon is able to deal with the competition from the WCW. So uh, Eric Bischoff's success with um, sort of NWO approved family wrestling, uh, as 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 least at least as a marketable concept at the time, was kind of bust. Like um, people weren't interested in that anymore. Uh, the WWF couldn't land. Uh, any major 
toy uh, contracts, action figures at this time because their 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 content wasn't clean. But that that really didn't matter because uh, people wanted the the Steve Austins, you know, um, Steve Austin uh, actual character tech kind of actually came out of his own past which was which was really kind of um uh, dark so but by then in 1996 um while, while he was getting you know his uh, lip um sort of fixed from a, a gash that that um that he had in the previous fights uh Mr. McMurray came to him and they designed the character uh together he had catchphrases like Austin um 316 um and and it was, this was a real like zeitgeist moment uh turning out t-shirts posters styrofoam middle fingers yes uh like uh, Austin was um, really giving out um to the to the crowds and he becomes a zeitgeist figure like Hulk Hogan was a zeitgeist figure but Hulk Hogan was all you know he was kind of a Reaganite figure you know mm-hmm. he had to, yes. the the big uh, flag wavings, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the Hulkamaniacs were, were 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 sort of good, upstanding people who, you know, that. But, but then Steve Austin was this countercultural, uh, raw countercultural figure, and you had, you know, the creation really of um, of Raw, um, you know, and uh, Raw was moving. Um, it, it, they even had co- concepts like um, trying to. Uh, based matches on on movies like Cape Fear. You know, Cape Fear is the uh, Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese movie where a, an ex-con um, goes and um, harasses a prosecutor uh, throughout the movie. And, um, and, and so the, the, the WWE was, was really taking on an, a completely different and new, um, just a new feel and new vibe um another thing was uh, i think as i've touched on already um there there was a writer at the wwe uh by the name of of russo and um and he had come out of wrestling magazines and and it was really him that was transforming the wwf into this kind of thing so uh, he became a staunch advocate for introducing homosexuality gun culture broken marriages racism uh, cross dressing all of these things into scripts um and uh, that was really changing the 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 WWE um the WWF at that time and so that's really how they managed to succeed against the Eric Bischoff family friendly um approach that was you know was winning them action figures and win- winning them um court and uh, social approval but wasn't marketable at that time and and this was a real countercultural moment and really the moment that that um that's i think the wwf established itself as as different from the uh immediate culture and was able to change the culture a, a little bit it was able to ride the wave of the 90s at the 90s at the time you know um sort of after the the, the self uh censorship of the 1980s you know you're getting um tarantino and uh, all of these other uh, movie directors 
you you you're getting the WWF, you're getting this kind of counterculture, counterculture in music, moving away from that Reaganite feel, and um and the WWF really becoming a huge cultural countercultural um sort of thing in 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 this period, um and it was it was really important. Yeah, it is fascinating to look back at the the transformation, as you say, Toby, from the Reagan eighties to the countercultural nineties. It's um, quite fascinating. Um, before we we move on to um, WWF, essentially buying uh, WCW, Vaughn, have you got anything else to add on on sort of nineties wrestling um, before we finish up? Not really. You guys covered everything. the The main thing I was going to say is that that while it is countercultural, it is very much in line with the nineties, as Toby said. It it was like grungy and angsty mm, yes. and very like Nirvana does wrestling, you know. <laughs> yes. <very much>. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and then the other the other main thing in my notes for this is the rock was hot and cocky so <laughs> you guys covered everything <laughs> yes the rock and his i mean he was sort of moving into uh starting to move into music and tv and film at that time as well which we'll, we'll touch on a little bit later um i suppose what we should move on to now then is just kind of briefly touch upon that uh around 2001 wcw was going through uh, really difficult financial times and WWF actually ended up buying uh, or taking over those promotions and um, by the end of 2001 you had um, this this roster full of wrestlers not just from WWF but from um, the w, uh, WCW and ECW as well and from my own point of view I remember this very well because 2000-2001 was kind of like the, the peak of my my interest in wrestling and I, I remember that they built a story storyline around the invasion storyline, as they called it, and that was uh, basically the a way of being able to tell a theatrical story around them integrating these additional wrestlers in into the fold in WWF. So you had uh, W. It started off with WWF WWF wrestling matches sort of being interrupted by these notorious. Um, uh, WCW and ECW uh, wrestlers who would come in and you know hit someone over the head with a chair or you know do whatever it is they did and uh, eventually it led to this this battle between the invasion force of the ECW and WCW wrestlers against the WWF um, set of wrestlers and then it uh, kind of came together with a, a sort of big television uh, promotion uh, I think it was Survivor Series, and they had a sort of big tag team wrestling match to decide, and it was kind of set up in the in the the, the promotion of, of the show that whichever side won would basically sort of take you know take over the wrestling empire. And what was interesting, there's a couple of interesting things about this. One is that Vince McMahon once again placed himself at the center of this, so in reality he was purchasing WCW and ECW, but in the storyline within WWF. The way it actually played out was that uh, his kids had taken over ECW and WCW. So Shane McMahon owned uh, WCW and uh, his daughter owned uh, ECW. And so it was a it was a McMahon versus McMahon thing as well as being a sort of wrestling industry thing as well. Uh, and eventually it kind of accumulated with um, WWF winning and uh, things, belt being united. And um, I think it was just a year later that WWF rebranded to WWE because of a, a lawsuit from the World Wildlife Federation. And so by 2002, you'd had this transformation of not only a name change 
for WWF, but also a transition from them having this big competitor over the last decade or so to being essentially the the owners of wrestling entertainment, certainly in America anyway. And from 2002 to about 2008, I think it was, um, the Attitude Era kind of got put to one side and it was a less extreme version. I think it was uh, called, um, what was it? Ruthless Aggression, um, where they had um, toned down some of what had kind of come before with some of the extreme nature of, of some of the violence and some of the, the exploitatives that had been happening in the Attitude Era. And also during this time, uh, some of the more established names, such as The Rock and Stone Cold, were were moving away and starting to uh, drift away and, and new talent was coming in. And uh, this was also probably the time where women's wrestling became a little bit more serious. And probably one of the things to note is that a lot of the time in women's wrestling, in the certainly in the 90s and the Attitude Era in WWF, it was not only an afterthought, it was kind of a very sexualized afterthought. I think that's one of the most interesting things to come out the last sort of 15, 20 years is that they've actually been able to find a place for women's wrestling which is kind of a more respected as a spectacle as far as on a technical level, but also they've managed to move beyond simply just sort of fant- uh, making a fantasy out of the women. And quite often in the nineties, they would just have things like panties and bra matches and there'd be just ridiculous sort of sexism that wouldn't sort of happen today, but that's just how it was presented in the, the attitude of the nineties. Um, so as, as far as kind of where we got to um, in, in the story, I guess um, I guess what we're moving on to now is the the, the 2000s um, and what kind of came after and how um, the uh, WWE, as it had become, had moved away from that era and um, it was becoming more established and you had stars like The Rock who was kind of coming back and forth between wrestling and eventually you got Dave Bautista and John Cena who became big stars and then themselves moving into Hollywood as well and becoming... Um, established as as sort of mainstream entertainment alongside the, the wrestling. Um, Vaughn, do you want to tell us any more about? Have you got anything more on the kind of the notes of of the WWE becoming more family friendly and it's sort of becoming part of the establishment of, of in the twenty first century? Yeah. Um, so, do you mean to go with Hollywood first? Yeah, I'm either or, whichever you prefer. So the the Hollywood stuff, just quickly, is really interesting because, um, as we've we've been saying, like wrestling is entertainment, and since the '50s, wrestlers were joining these federations not because they wanted to be athletes, but because they wanted to be television stars, and that started to leak over into Hollywood. Um, So we think of like The Rock and John Cena as like wrestlers turned actors, but it's actually like a a longstanding tradition for wrestlers to move into film roles um, with one of the most prominent ones before the 21st century being Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride in 1987. Um, In 2001, Macho Man Randy Savage is in the first Spider-Man in the cage match with Spider-Man at the beginning when he's trying to make money. Um, that's that's more as a specific wrestling cameo, but you also have like later on the rock being in the tooth fairy. And this ushers in a weird, re- this is the weird part that these like 
wrestlers who were part of the attitude era and the grungy counterculture years they start popping up in these like extremely family-friendly kids films like the tooth fairy with the rock um there are several others where where they're like these overgrown like hyper masculine figures who are like like playing butler to little girls and it's like a weird era of films um but also for wrestlers and now obviously we have other things like kevin nash um was in magic mike xxl um and he was also super shredder in the live action teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 the secret of the ooze so you know making it big in hollywood um and then obviously as simon just said batista dave batista is um a massive star now because he's in the MCU as Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. So while it's not like necessarily a new phenomenon, it is still a phenomenon for wrestlers to move on to Hollywood. Um, the only change is with kind of the roles that they were getting over time. And this weird era of wrestlers in super family friendly things was part of the WWE moving into what they call the PG era, um, which started in 2008. So this came out of a couple of things. Um, first, as Simon said, like it, the WWE started to kind of regress away from the aggressive violence and overt sexuality and these like more hardcore storylines and soap opera-esque things of the Attitude Era in the late 90s. Um, so throughout the, the early 2000s, there was a streamlining and a kind of toning down a little bit. And then um, in 2005, one wrestler who was one of my favorites actually, Eddie Guerrero, he uh, passed away from drug use and that became a real kind of stigma again for the WWE. And then again, as Toby referenced earlier, um, Chris Benoit's tragedy with, uh, if you don't know what happened, he murdered his family and then committed suicide in 2007. Um, so there was, there was a real concern about the WWE and the violence out of it and the drug use and everything that made it so iconic in the 90s was now in the mid-2000s having consequences. So the television parental guidance um, for WWE in 2008 changed to PG and they kind of forced the WWE to adapt. Um, it became much more conservative with their storylines and uh, far less violence, far less sexuality and, and sexual content. The, the characters became more kind of single note and they were more like the heroes were more superhero-esque um, and the villains were more one-dimensional. So there was a pretty clear demarcation of like good versus bad. And fans, um, fans kind of hate it because it's like a family-friendly version of what the WWE used to be. Uh, and it was a total sellout because from a, a business standpoint, it appealed more to corporate sponsors, but it was like kind of boring, right? 
Um, so the WWE says that the PG era ended in 2013, but a lot of people say it's still kind of the mainstay MO for the WWE today. And like the main star out of the PG era is John Cena. Um, he renamed his finishing move, the FU. He renamed it to Attitude Adjustment in this period <laughs> and like, thought no one would notice. Um, and it... Uh, in this period, you also have people like Randy Orton and Rey Mysterio. Batista was very popular then. Um, Edge, Triple H again. Uh, the big show, they all kind of adapted for this. And then you have like The Miz, who was just like fucking annoying. I hated The Miz. Um, <laughs> and as Simon said, like women were really sidelined for a lot of WWE's like history. Um, they were always the sideshow. They were always just like the sexual piece. But then in this era, when they were kind of forced to be more PG, they were like, oh, well, what do we do with these women? So they they started having more um, actual storylines and things to do, essentially. Um, Stephanie McMahon started having a lot more storylines and like was like the total girl boss of the like 2008 to like 2015 era. Um, and the the women pro wrestlers finally got something called the divas revolution in 2015 that was really starring like aj lee and page uh and they're still growing in prominence even today within the wwe yeah absolutely thanks that one um i think that it is interesting i mean i i don't watch wrestling anymore i don't have any interest in it but um even though <laughs> I, I i can i can see for myself why i'd be sort of less interested in the sort of tamer version of wrestling today than compared to the the wrestling that held my interest in the 90s at the same time yeah, right? i can also I, I can also see why the the evolution of female wrestling has been such a big step forward and i suppose looking back at it now you, there's a certain element if you you sometimes accept things as, as a kid if that's how the world is and then you get a bit older and you go why the hell was that accepted as the way it was um hmm. so um yeah i think that's um an interesting point to kind of get us up to pretty much t today um I, I i suppose where we are at right now is that wwe are um they, they have been trying to continually evolve how they push their content um to to the masses um they started the wwe network um which was a sort of paid subscription video service um and that was how they started to get their their content out there and then i, I believe they've signed a deal um with the peacock uh, streaming service which i think is going to basically take over that service in the usa instead I, although i think the w wwe network is still um sort of being used out with the usa so i i think as the WWE has moved forward, um, it's becoming more aligned with how entertainment is being consumed today. And I think part of that is, I know that Triple H, who was a wrestler and who married Stephanie McMahon, I, he's had more and more involvement in bringing WWE into the mainstream and I, I think trying to tie it to um, um, how, how modern media is moving forward which is obviously interesting when you think of what Vince McMahon was able to do in the television era and the disruption disruption of local um, wrestling groups and turning it into sort of a national um, televised um, spectacle so I suppose we're, we're 
we're very much at a disruption point with media and we're seeing that with cinema for instance and the difficulties uh, cinema is having with trying to combine artistry with um, mass corporation media content and um, wrestling seems to be at the moment at least WWE seems to be doing a relatively good job of trying to move into this uh, video streaming content world um, it will be interesting with, I believe there's AEW now, which is some competition, I think, at former in 2019, um, whether or not that will be able to last and whether or not it'll be able to go up, up, up against the established WWE, I guess we will see in time. Um, but WWE doesn't really, ha- or hasn't for a long time, um, hasn't had a main competitor the way it did in the 80s and 90s that was pushing it and making it change. And... Um, it is part of surface it has wwe has now established itself as part of the culture and um quite often you'll see like on, on twitter when a football team wins a championship triple h will like tweet out like he'll like like oh you've there's like a man manchester city wwe belt has been handed to them in order to inaugurate their great success of winning the title and it's just kind of funny that wwe is now sort of it, it's been able to establish itself as this not only is this sort of weird entertainment that is, you know, scripted, but I think it's able to add new generations of people who who will go along for that ride. Um, also around this time, it's probably also worth noting that um, combat sports in America and the world have changed in that time. And so you've had um, MMA, which is obviously completely real and not scripted, uh, has, I think, et into a little bit of what maybe some of the, the sort of harder edged WWE as it was back in maybe the nineties when, um, and, uh, when mixed martial arts wasn't around and you've actually kind of got a mixed martial arts sort of being the other side of the, um, way to go for some wrestlers. So for instance, um, you had, um, uh, you had, um, the Hollywood, um, approach that some wrestlers could take once they became, big enough stars that they could go down and that they could um you know follow the rock and john cena and they could uh, go down that route i think actually dave batista i think he had like one mma fight and i think he just about won that but it's interesting that he didn't decide to go down the route of being a professional like fighting athlete he decided to move into the world of wrestling into the world of entertainment whereas um i think we've had other wrestlers um, I can't remember his name now, um, the, one of the big stars of, of today, he did actually have a spell away from WWE and he moved into um, mixed martial arts for a while um, and then um, he's now come back to WWE and so I, I think it's it'll be interesting to see if, the, if there are going to be more people and more wrestlers who decide that once they become big enough are they going to move into professional fighting or are they going to move into professional entertainment in the Hollywood style and so far it seems more the bigger names have all moved into um, have moved into the entertainment and going down the Dave Batista route um, but there have been some who have gone down the mixed martial arts route um, I don't really know if there's anything more to say on the kind of the wrestling of today as it were but it would be interesting just a couple of things to touch on before we finish up which i think is really interesting and which it kind of was the established part of or was one of the reasons we established this particular episode 
which is based around wrestling and politics. And originally when we were coming up with the idea for the show, wrestling and politics was kind of part of it. And we've not touched upon it too much, but there is actually a huge connection between the Republican Party and wrestling um, from uh, Linda McMahon uh, actually being part of the Trump White House, I think. I think she was some secretary of something or other. Um, she was in small charge of like, small businesses, yes. Um, Donald Trump very much pushed his um, his brand as part of the, the WWE in the, the 2000s. And it was very much Trump versus McMahon and the battle of the billionaires. And um, he Trump was very much able to sort of establish himself as a figure who was, I think he was actually kind of much loved within the, the WWE like community. And he was seen as like the, the, the good version of Vince McMahon in the world of WWE. And again, that that's an example of WWE wanting to bring someone in from the outside who's kind of well-known and who has, who has prestige, but in particular, Donald Trump was able to align himself with a certain set of fans who are maybe more likely to be kind of the working class type of fans that you know he would later kind of call upon to try and get um, elected and to vote from later on in life and there are actually wrestling um, connections beyond that such as I think the wrestler who played Kane I think he's like the mayor of um, a Republican mayor of a small town and you had Jesse Ventura who was was he governor of I can't remember which state it was Minnesota right Yes, that's Minnesota, yeah. yes. So there is actually a lot tied to the uh, the t- between WWE in particular and the... Yeah, I'd like to talk just a little bit about Linda McMahon, actually. Yeah, go, go for Linda, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, obviously, she was the wife of um, Vince McMahon. Uh, obviously, a political executive. She ran and lost um, in Connecticut twice uh, to be the senator, Um uh, in 2009, she lost to Democrat uh, Richard Blumenthal, and sh- uh, she lost again in 2012, obviously, as you say, becoming the small business um, head of small business administration under the, the Donald Trump uh, administration between 2017 and 2019. But I think one really interesting thing about uh, her, her campaign and actually in the, in the polling um, of her uh, campaign, um, you know, she had a lot of um, name recognition in, in Connecticut, a lot of really strong um, name recognition. But actually, it was the uh, the her the vote uh, was split between men and women. So actually, men were really, really interested in, in her candidacy uh, in Connecticut. Um, but unfortunately, uh, women were deserting her, her campaign in droves. Uh, she trailed among female voters by almost a two to one margin uh, in some polls. Um, people were generally, obviously, they were very familiar with the uh, WWE brand and that brand recognition um, strengthened her campaign in, in some aspects. But it, it, was a, it was a double-edged sword, really. So, um, so without a diverse appeal, uh, in contrast, actually, in deep contrast, other pop culture figures, uh, even Ronald Reagan, for example, uh, her candidacy kind of um, uh, died on the vine. And um, but she 
and her husband have for a long time been um, contributors to the Republican Party and about Republican um, campaigns and, and, and ventures. And as you as you mentioned, um, not only the Justin Ventura campaign, I mean, Justin Ventura in Minnesota, um, he 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 ran on his name recognition. And uh, but his 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 actual governorship was uh, in many ways kind of quite mixed. So he mixes the the wrestling and the politics in his TV ad uh, persona. Um, after campaigning partially on on tax cuts, he did actually refund the Minnesota budget surplus to taxpayers, um, and uh, and he did push forward his Jesse checks um, Jesse checks policy, but. Many of the um, many of the actual wrestlers who have gone into politics, many of them have been Republicans. Many of them have relied on a sort of pull your bootstraps mentality that um, I suppose they believe can be found in the ring. And um, and yeah, and that's that's really the relationship um, between politics. I mean, it's a very, it's actually really quite a a long list. Um, Glenn Jacobs, uh, as uh, Simon's talked about, uh, better known as Kane, uh, Jesse Ventura, actually Ric Flair, uh, went so far as to announce uh, uh, his intention of uh, being a governor in 2000 uh, himself. Um, as late as uh, 28, he was still uh, mulling his options. He he actually was actually working with Jesse Ventura to put a, a, a campaign uh, together. Um, uh, Jerry Lawler, um, beloved icon in, in Memphis, um, he had a failed um, mayoral bid. Um, so in 1999, the semi-retired wrestling co-host of WWE's Raw television show decided to mix uh, wrestling politics. Uh, he ran in that, in that city as well. And so there's a number of different wrestlers who've run on trying to adapt their wrestling personas to become uh, politicians and uh, many of them running on the Republican Party bandwagon, many of them trying to uh, appeal, actually, like Linda uh, McMahon herself, to male audiences and the relationship between um, the Republican brand or Trump himself and wrestling goes back really, really far because obviously Trump is in many ways, it's kind of like Mr. McMahon, a sort of bullish businessman, self-promoter. Um, as far back as 1988, actually, McMahon used the Trump Plaza in Atlantic City for uh, WrestleMania 4, uh, which was headlined by Randy Savage. Um, the event was considered such like such a big success that Trump wanted to host uh, WrestleMania 5 in the same venue the following year. Uh, during one event in 2004, Trump even gave ring ringside interviews to Jesse the Body Ventura, who was the governor of Minnesota at the time, looking for Trump to uh, endorse uh, his campaign to be president. Um, obviously, Mr. McMahon challenged Donald Trump to a match in 2007, uh, billed as the Battle of the Billionaires. Uh, neither man was going to wrestle, so obviously they handpicked um, people to uh, wrestle in their place um but then you know after the the match took place they obviously had that brouhaha in outside the ring uh and obviously it, it, it's very strange but we actually have a a 
president who's been inducted into the you know the WWE Hall of Fame and 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 Donald Trump. So yeah, there's this there is this um, this link between wrestling and politics more towards the Republican Party, more towards men, and um, and it's sort of attracting uh, male voters. Um, and uh, and and it's interesting because it's not such such an obvious thing, but in, in other ways it is obvious because the the kind of skills of wrestling, um, skills of make believe and um, self promotion and the sort of soap opera skills that people develop within the wrestling world that Mr. McMahon's kind of develops can be grafted on to um, to politics itself. I think it's it's quite interesting that someone like Linda McMahon um, has failed uh, to become a successful sort of elected politician as opposed to a technocrat um, as she had been a technocrat as a small business department leader in the Trump administration uh, and in some ways a technocrat in the WWE uh, working on the business end of the WWE but the more established wrestlers like Kane and uh, Jesse Ventura and to a lesser extent Ric Flair have had some success running campaigns because the skills they develop wrestling in many ways are kind of similar to the skills of contemporary uh, politicians. Um, so that, that's, I, I find that uh, particularly, um, particularly interesting, not so obvious in some ways, but actually in some other ways, really, really obvious. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, as you say, Toby, it, it ties in with the skills of being able to um, talk on the mic, which is a big part of wrestling and being able to present a character, which is a big part of politics. Um, Vaughn, are you delighted that after all that, we managed to tie Jesse Ventura um, winning um, the race to become governor of Minnesota and doing so as part of the reform party, which of course ties us into your boy, Ross Perot. Um, Yep. How delighted are you? And do you see this as a personal victory for Ross Perot um, with Jesse Ventura winning that, that race to become governor of Minnesota? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it's like a really beautiful and like wonderful homage to a fantastic <laughs> man being Ross Perot. And it's just a really beautiful way to like keep his spirit alive, you know? So good on Jesse Ventura for that. Agreed. Um, I have two things to add on yeah, Trump very quickly, if I may. Um, the the first is that, like, yeah, as as you've both said, like he has this long-standing kind of history with the WWE, and he um was was on an episode where he helped shave Vince McMahon's <laughs> head. Like weird connections with Trump for this. But one of them, um, is that in like the mid 2000s and I remember watching this live um there Vince McMahon was like having a feud with someone and got in his limo and the limo blew up and Donald Trump called Triple H and said <laughs> did something happen to Vince because he thought it was real <laughs> like they 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 made a whole thing about like this is live television like this is a live mm-hmm. feed of, of Vince McMahon getting in his car obviously it wasn't it was like he yes. got out of the car but 
<laughs> it just like it fooled Trump and Triple H was like, oh, that's the magic of television. And then that man was our president. Right, right. Um, I, I actually that remember at that time. 2008. That was in 2008. It wasn't that long before he was our president that he thought Vince McMahon was blown <laughs> no, up. No, because I, I actually remember at that time, like it, the, the WWE tried to promote that as if it was real. Yeah. So um, a lot of their news that was coming out of the WWE, uh, a lot of the sort of uh, talk radio promotions at the time were like, oh, Mr. McMahon really is dead. <laughs> and um, I remember there's, an, there's actually an episode of Opie and Anthony from 2000 and eight where they're talking to one of the interns and the and the intern was really into WWE and they were like how'd you feel about um, the death of Mr. McMahon and he like he was like yeah he was he like he knew Mr. McMahon wasn't dead and they knew it but they were they were like they were trying to continue the the nonsense and it's really Mm -hmm. funny to 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 actually believe that Donald Trump genuinely believed that Mr. McMahon uh, was dead uh, because of that. Yeah. Sorry, Bond, did yeah. you have anything else to add? Sorry. Um, yeah, no. So, so yeah, Triple H said that, like, he had several calls from, like, celebrities who were like, did this really happen? And, like, <laughs> like not part of the actual production or um, promotion of it. They were genuinely concerned that he had died. And Trump was one of them. The other thing is that uh, last year, um, nope, that was this year. The, this year when the rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. I can't believe that was still this year, but yeah. that's all right. Um, Mick Foley tweeted and said, this is on you, Mr. President. Every single injury today is on you. And then he said, hey, Vince, how about throwing this sorry son of a bitch out of our Hall of Fame? And that I think is really interesting because as Toby said, m- many of the wrestlers who go into politics or comment on politics are Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in, in very recent years, people like Mick Foley and like John Cena, um, Dave Batista, The Rock, they're all quite liberal. And I don't know if that's just because of today's politics and where where they personally lean or if that's part of like the progression that we were just talking about of the WWE's cultural shifts and how the the wrestlers from like the attitude era who were popular really for being countercultural um they're very much republicans but the the ones who were very popular in the PG era that was more kind of like culturally conservative they've become further left um maybe i wouldn't i wouldn't say they are leftists but i would say they're probably more liberal than than many of the other ones and i just find it very interesting that mick foley who was known for these like extreme um mm-hmm. stunts and injuries and all of these sorts of things his kind of endurance with the rigorous and more dangerous stunts like he is challenging the Republican, like like the GOP's party stance and calling out Trump. Um, yeah. And I just think that's a very interesting kind of progression for, for wrestling and its association with Trump. Absolutely. No, that, that's a very good point. Um, I guess we'll, we'll see in the coming years whether or not um, other wrestlers move into politics and 
those yeah. and whether or not there's even any move from wrestlers or ex-wrestlers to be more vocal against the Vince McMahon, Donald Trump um, sort of promotion. I, I also imagine Triple H will be, although he's very tied to Vince McMahon, it'll be interesting to see how, if he distances himself, distances himself from Trump in any way, or whether or not he very much toes that line. So that that would be interesting to yeah. to see. A um, couple of just very minor points for myself. Uh, one was the, the the wrestler who went into the uh, uh, mixed martial arts, who I couldn't remember his name was Brock Lesnar, who's now I think back oh, in yeah, WWE. Brock Lesnar, so yeah. Brock Lesnar was the name I was blanking on there. He he was that, he he won he won his. Um... His MMA matches, didn't he? He did, yeah. I think he, he was had quite a, successful. I think, I think he had a pretty decent record. I think yeah. he won a title as well. Um, and then the other thing was, just before we finished up and before you guys had anything else to add, um, there was one piece of research that I was just looking at where um, they described this commentator called Gordon Solly, and he was dubbed the Walter Cronkite of professional wrestling. So I just wanted to add that in there that... Um, somebody somewhere was once dubbed the walter cronkite of professional wrestling um which is a title i always assumed would be um honored with toby but um there you go um is there anything else we want to touch upon with wrestling before we close up this uh, this episode you know I, I do think just to follow on from what vaughn said you know like it is it is sort of strange when you have someone like foley talking about you know the the january incident despite the fact that most people associated with WWE, even the business people associated with WWE have been Republicans. I think The Rock is, is quite an interesting case. I mean, I, I don't know that much about it, but his politics is kind of like center-right, you know, like, um, but center-right kind of like Colin Powell center-right. But in this period, he's been forced to be to seem like a liberal icon. And like if he ran uh-huh. for president, which he possibly could do, or, you know, he, he has the, the kind of platform that, that could you could, could run for president. But he, he still observes a kind of Republican sort of rags to riches story around you know around a kind of masculinity that that has his sort of nice smiling face above it it's not really like center left or even like leftist rhetoric really and that kind of space doesn't generate that kind of rhetoric because it is it's all you know it's a lot about strength and physicality it it would be interesting to see like like what a genuine leftist wrestling icon would look like, you know? Yeah. If if one emerges, or maybe one exists, maybe it's John Cena. I don't know, but yeah, it it it, it is really interesting to see like the, the the political aspects of it. Absolutely, and I do wonder whether or not, um, as you say, Toby, because of the sort of uh, viewing towards nazism of, of, of the republican party right now um the rock is closer to like a john mccain type political figure who just has been pushed left by contrast rather than actually being a leftist figure um so yeah that, that's an interesting thought as to whether or not we'll what if any figures will get on the political side from wrestling in the near future um 
Vaughn, any thoughts other than um, declaring yourself a sexy boy? Um, anything else you'd like <laughs> to add to today's show? Um, the WWE was part of my bisexual awakening. Oh. We can cut that. We can cut um. that. <laughs> <laughs> no. What? What? I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> Have I stunned you both? Um, no, because of the attitude era and mm-hmm. the hypersexualization of Makes everyone. Um, when I was when I was a young child, really, because mm-hmm. I was six in two thousand, so I was like quite young when I was exposed to all of this like hypersexualized mm-hmm. kind of content, and in the early two thousands. Um, that was that was part of it for me and i would not be shocked if it was part of a lot of people's kind of sexual awakenings in our generation absolutely well i mean i guess because anything, it was uh, sorry. I was, sorry to interrupt i was just say anything which is exposing um any kind of sexuality at all uh, on a mainstream media point of view uh, you know uh, I, I wasn't expecting you to say that but now you said it, it, makes, <laughs> it makes perfect sense so um yes no that's that's really yeah. interesting interesting to hear actually i specifically remember what it was too it wasn't even wwe like a show necessarily it was playing the wwe game on uh gamecube oh my god interesting there was a bra and panty match yeah 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 yeah. like stacy and and trish stratus yeah yes exactly i played i played a video game at my my friend's my friend's house and it was uh it was, it was like that. <laughs> it was like that. Yeah. But not. But it. But it was one way. Uh, <laughs> this is so weird. Like. But yeah. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, it's I think it really is exactly part weird. of it. Okay. Maybe we can keep this in then. So yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of cultural thing that that was something that I was exposed to, like as watching it, um, on the show. But then having the games of the WWE also, it was something mm-hmm. that you could kind of explore in your own time and in your own way. Yes. And I specifically remember the Stacey Keebler um, match on the game that I was like, what is this? What's going on? And it was like a sexual awakening for me when I in what, like 2004, 2005, something like that. So, yeah, WWE is like very it's a very, very, very interesting cultural kind of it is. thing for a lot of people, especially, I think, in that that late 90s early 2000s era and for our generation i don't know if people would have the same kind of associations with it now with it being so kind of cleaned up and mm-hmm. like the the women's outfits are definitely still kind of skimpy and all of that but the hypersexualization that was a big thing for for me at least um as a kid and something that i i wouldn't have been exposed to in in other kind of media at the time absolutely um I think well, one, one cool thing you, you said at the beginning of this is that like you, you, you look at the WWE and you, you remember back to a time when you weren't that lucid of, of a person, like like 2000, yeah. you know, like when, when you were six or like when I was like eight. And, and I do like I don't shoot. I don't have like day to day memories of being eight at all. Like nothing happened. But when I like think about wrestling at that time, I I can can recall parts of my life that I don't don't remember. So again, with the with the Stacy Keebler 
stuff. I remember that. Um, yeah, so it's it was really interesting to 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 look at this 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 archive because it does almost bring back a lot of repressed memories. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not yeah. I don't know necessarily repressed, but like this this was a cultural moment for us in in like the western world i think and it's not something that necessarily gets the credit for as much as it did for people you know what i mean i also i forgot about that moment for me until i started doing the research for this and i was like oh my god i re like that that like maturing whatever you want to call it the my sexual awakening was because of WWE and it's something that I've never been able to place before but then like doing this just really unlocked a lot of memories so I do as I said in the beginning I think it's a cult for children I think it's a child cult to like be obsessed yeah. with the WWE I mean just thinking about now WWE is filled with so many wild characters I don't know if you saw yeah. the other year that uh, Ric Flair declared and then was told by Halle Berry this is not the case but he was like yeah I had sex with Halle Berry and then Halle Berry's what? like no that didn't happen what the fuck are you on about so um that, that that's a new story that happened so I believe Ric Flair <laughs> <laughs> yeah wrestling is fuck fucking weird um right um are we we done now or shall we just talk about our childhood memories a bit more I think we're good. I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Toby and Vaughn, thank you very much for all the, the research you did on today's episodes. Um, it was very much appreciated. And I hope you got some reward out of it by thinking of Stacey Keebler at the end. So um, yeah. good good job, guys. Um, <laughs> I did. I don't, I don't know about the listener, but having a great right. time over here. From, <laughs> from Vaughn, from Toby, from Stacey Keebler, and from myself, Simon and from Ric Flair. Um, thank you very much for listening, and we'll have another, another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.